You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, and welcome to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host. And today's business at hand is the business of conservation biology. I'm very pleased to have as my guest Dr. Chris Mallory, a Ph.D. professor of biology at Berry College, where he teaches introductory biology, courses on ecology, and focuses also on conservation biology, and has also uh, focused on uh, research programs that are centered on animal ecology. Um, welcome to the Business Hour, um, Dr. Mallory. Thank you, Ron. Glad to be here. Um, let's uh, start off uh, with an overview of uh, what you teach uh, at Barry College. And for listeners not familiar with Barry College, it's actually um, one of the best private colleges in the southeast, and it's located uh, due north of Atlanta uh, in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains. Is that correct? That, that's right. It's in Rome, Georgia, so just about 75 miles northwest of Atlanta. Um, yeah, a really great place, about 2,000 students, a private liberal arts college. Um, one of the things that Barry is most known for is it's the largest college campus in the world. It sits on 26,000 acres of land. So a beautiful place, a wonderful place to be a biologist. Um, the college is over 100 years old, founded by Martha Barry, uh, and just a, a, a great place, and we have you know really wonderful students there. Can you literally uh, walk out the door and take a long, long hike? And in some cases, do you even have to drive to some of the remote sections? Oh, for sure, for sure. Uh, it, it is a, a wonderful place, as I said, to be a biologist. It's, um, you know, that 26,000 acres. Much of it, of course, is undeveloped land. Um, so it is, as you said, in the foothills. So um, what is called Lavender Mountains sort of sits on the backside of the campus. Um, uh, again, a, a beautiful spot. You know, if I asked... Um most people to describe uh, what the lay of the land was, uh, specifically what the ecology of that area is, uh, they'd probably give me some vague uh, um, answer, but you can answer that with uh, in, in a little more depth, with a little more depth. What is the ecology like in, in the, on those 26,000 acres other than the, the humans? Well, it's it's in what's called the Ridge and Valley province. So the the state of Georgia is divided into different what are called geographic or geophysic geophysical provinces, um, and so it has uh, elevation. Um, it is one of the most unique things about it. One of my colleagues, Dr. Martin Cipollini, who's uh, also a, a biologist. Uh, there is, it is the northernmost population of longleaf pine is on Barry's campus. So longleaf pine used to be the predominant pine in the southeast. It ranged from Virginia to Louisiana. It's primarily a coastal species, long-lived, beautiful uh, pine tree, um, and it is maintained with fire 
so fire is a natural component of the maintenance of the longleaf ecosystem, um, and that's what that does is it helps the cones to open up. It prevents hardwoods from coming in, and so uh, so and we as humans have suppressed fire, and so that's why longleaf pine in, in many parts has dwindled. But Barry is one of the highest most northern uh, latitudes where longleaf pines still exist. And my colleague has been very responsible uh, for maintaining that system and restoring that system. So very unique. And and aside from what would be um, hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of species of uh, everything from insects uh, to small mammals, what are some of the larger mammals uh, uh, in that region? Well, we would have most of what you would find in the way of mammals in Georgia. So we have uh, coyotes, as we'll talk about here in a bit, uh, white-tailed deer, bears, bobcats, river otters, uh, raccoons, possums, skunks. Um, so uh, now we're seeing armadillos, actually. That's, uh, but, yeah, we have a, a, a rich biodiversity on that campus, which is, which is wonderful. Um, we have a question here uh, from uh, within the studio. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's sort of a general question, but uh, for listeners out there who may not be familiar, you know, I've studied biology off and on uh, as an undergraduate and, and even graduate student, but what's a biologist? Well, a biologist is one who studies life. So that's literally what the word biology means. It's the study of life. So as a result, it's a huge discipline because the living world is, is huge. It uh, ranges everything from bacteria to blue whales. So uh, it's a so biologists generally uh, will specialize in a particular area because the discipline has has gotten so large. Um, but really, at its core, that's what biologists do: is they study life, and that again could be at the molecular level. It could be at the cellular level. It could be at the system level. It could be at the organismal level. In other words, studying a single organism. Or it could be more what I do. Uh, I consider myself an ecologist where uh, I'm studying really the living world uh, at a larger scale. Kind of the interrelationship of different uh, species and uh, systems of uh, uh, animals and plants, um, right? Because, because you have uh, zoology and horticulture and uh, and human biology. Yeah. So again, uh, it's the interaction. Ecology is the interaction between not only living organisms, but what we call the abiotic world. So where do living organisms get their energy? Where do their wastes go? How do they process gases? Um, so. Really, ecology, I I find it fascinating because it is such a large field, uh, and it it is focusing on these interactions between, as we say, the the biotic world, the living world, and the abiotic world. Now, this may not be a fair question um, because you uh, spent a semester uh, explaining to uh, introductory students to biology, but what's in the scope of your introductory? I mean, give us a broad brush overview of what an introductory course in biology is today. Well, these days, again, as I said, because the discipline of biology has has really gotten so large, we can't get it all in in one semester. So we, uh, and we have debates and discussions about how to best present this, but uh, 
currently we divide the introductory biology courses into th- actually three semesters. So it takes three semesters to get all the way through it. Um, and so we, we spend a semester studying cell biology, so sort of the, the very minute molecules and, and cells. Um, and then the course that I teach, which I just completed, giving my last final exam the other day, is a, a course in zoology. So we are focusing zoology is just the study of animals. But again, animals range everything from sponges to human beings. So that's one of the things that I first ask my students on the first day of class is I ask them, to name their favorite animal, and most people name a horse or a dog or a lion or a giraffe or something like that, and then I break the news to them that all of those animals that they've just mentioned are vertebrates, and they make up just a very small fraction of the animal kingdom, and we have to learn all about sponges and jellyfish and tapeworms. In in, in fact, I was asking you um, recently about... uh, the number of species that are on the planet, and you pointed out to me that there were uh, virtually millions of species of uh, insects. Is that correct? There are. Uh, the, the insect group, which are animals, insects are animals, that is the largest group of, uh, with respect to numbers of species and numbers of individuals, for that matter, of, of any living organism. So we don't know as scientists exactly how many species there are on Earth. Uh, there are about a little less than 2 million described species, in other words, species that have been identified and described. But new species are being discovered all the time. Um, people find that surprising, but it is actually occurring. Um, and we really don't know how many species there are on Earth. Um, in particularly uh, in what we call rich biodiverse areas like coral reefs, like uh, tropical rainforests, like the longleaf pine ecosystem in the temperate zones, actually is a very rich, species-rich uh, ecosystem. There are species that we we don't know of yet, and so are are always discovering. So, do, do you think that there are vast numbers of species uh, in in uh, parts of the world? And and I would imagine that in developed parts of the world, where you have uh, educational programs and uh, researchers um, that are funded uh, to focus uh, careers on uh, evaluating the range of species. Do you think that in places like Western Europe and North America, we are much more aware of the scope of species and that it's the regions like in parts of uh, uh, around the Amazon uh, River and uh, remote parts of uh, Mongolia, if you will, uh, uh, and and uh, parts of uh, Africa where we don't know and where there are millions of species to be discovered? Well, in, in some ways that's true. Um, however, those areas, you know, some of those areas that you mentioned in, in, in you know, tropical rainforests, for example, they certainly draw the attention of people who are scientists who are interested in this kind of thing and, and certainly local populations who are understanding and appreciative of the rich biodiversity that they have in, in these areas. So so we may not know of all of the species there, not necessarily because people aren't interested or able to to discover them, but simply the large numbers that are there just simply means that it's harder to find them all. Um, well, 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 speaking about those regions where we've focused over the last uh, few decades or maybe several decades, maybe the last, 
100 years where uh, scientists, <clears throat> biologists, zoologists, horticulturists have gone into uh, the Amazon uh, region uh, or to uh, remote parts of, of Africa. Um, you have spent some time studying primates uh, in Africa and um, I will back up for a, a moment here. You have an undergraduate degree in biology from Wake Forest, a master's degree in biology from Emory University, and your Ph.D. is from Emory University. Um, was it during that time uh, as a, um, a student and researcher that you uh, embarked on uh, studies uh, related to primates? It, it was. I Again, I feel very fortunate in my life to have been given opportunities. Um, and while I was in graduate school at Emory, when I first began, I was given the opportunity to go to Kenya uh, and begin studies of a endangered primate species. A primate is, a, is a, in this case, it was a monkey. It's called a red colobus monkey. It's one of the most endangered uh, primate species in the world because it lives in such a very narrow niche, as we say. This, this animal is found in the forests that grow along what is called the Tana River. Uh, Tana River runs from Mount Kenya to the Indian Ocean and uh, runs through Kenya. So Kenya is found in East Africa. So these animals are confined to that uh, particular forest. We're going to be taking a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking uh, more about uh, the various uh, species that you've uh, focused on, uh, both as a uh, student and as an academician, and uh, we'll be talking about uh, your coyote project. We're here with Dr. Chris Mallory, a zoologist, ecologist, and we'll be back right after this break. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Daryl Polis inviting you to listen to America's Homegrown Veggie Show right here every Saturday morning at 10 Eastern Time. Great guests, great tips, and valuable information about growing your own vegetables, fruits, and herbs. Quick Steaks, that's Q-U-I-K Steaks, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Steaks, Q-U-I-K Steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Dr. Chris Mallory, who is a professor of biology at uh, Berry College, uh, but also he's, along with uh, teaching introductory biology and ecology, has focused a great deal on conservation biology. And before the break, we were talking about the primates of Kenya, specifically the red Columbus, uh, is that did I uh, say colobus. that? Colobus. Yeah, red colobus. And I'll I'll just say a brief word about what that word means. Colobines are very interesting because they're the ruminants of the primate world. They have a stomach like a sheep or a cow, and so it allows them to eat a diet primarily of leaves and and digest those leaves as a sheep or a cow would. That's a uh, they have a chambered stomach. They actually, part of their stomach is called the rumen. And so, in- interesting animals. And and what's the status of of that species? Is it is it healthy? Is it diminishing? It, uh, it is not, unfortunately. Now that is it's that particular. Uh, Red colobus monkeys range across equatorial Africa from east to west. Uh, so, and they are divided into different subspecies because they have different physical characteristics. But this particular, this is called the Tana River red colobus monkey. And again, its habitat is being destroyed um, by people, unfortunately, who live alongside the river and uh, have lost, have chopped parts of the forest down. Um, so it was a it was a population that was fairly small to begin with, and so it's just sort of dealing with the challenges of of, of living aside, alongside humans, is, and that's often the case in conservation biology. But anyway, it's a a very interesting animal, not a large population. Yeah, a lot of uh, folks uh, think in terms of encroaching upon uh, various am- animal habitats uh, as uh, urban growth, but certainly in parts of the Amazon where they're there's a great deal of deforestation, and as well as Africa, it's just um, the diminishing tree canopy uh, essentially is destroying the habitat for various species. Certainly, yeah. For for those uh, species that are are dependent upon that type of habitat, yeah, deforestation is is having devastating effects, unfortunately, in many places. Would you say that that, that your studies uh, in Kenya uh, were part of your foundation in your own evolution as a conservation biologist? Most certainly. Yeah, most certainly. Uh, I, I got to see firsthand the challenges of conservation. Uh, and and I, I say that there's deforestation, um, but these people are simply trying to survive, and so uh, it's not out of malice. Um, they are simply trying to farm and eke out a living. And so um, I, I was, you know, fortunate enough to see the challenges of, of conservation firsthand and that there are no easy answers, and it requires uh, cooperation from a, a multitude of stakeholders to try to come up with solutions to uh that are that are favorable to both human beings and to the biodiversity that that surrounds them. Well, Chris, let's talk about that for a moment because you know there are mixed feelings about the value of zoos and preserves. I personally think it's unfortunate that we should even have to um, preserve species uh, in zoo-like environments uh, or nature preserves. But at the same time, we are preserving some species by dedicating 
land uh, and uh, in large uh, regional uh, nature preserves so that we can have um, species, especially large predators, uh, lions, tigers, uh, as well as giraffes and, and, and elephants and, and, and many more species of uh, bears, if you will, uh, you know, in our own national parks. What's your feeling about, and, and we're going to be talking about peaceful coexistence with various uh, species, uh, um, particularly predators, uh, in a moment, but what's your feeling about the value of zoos and, and nature preserves uh, so that we can really um, essentially hold on to some of the species that we're losing. Yeah, well, zoos and aquaria and uh, botanical gardens, you know, are doing wonderful work these days. Um, they have become much more focused on conservation. They have a they are staffed by scientists who are doing great work. They realize their role um, is is one of public education, so certainly there is that um, benefit that we we gain uh, from those kinds of captive settings. We call those in situ conservation settings, um, but they are, uh, you know, as I say, they're they're doing wonderful work and have have realized the role that they can play in conservation. Um, you know, unfortunately, it's the situation that we find ourselves on on this planet is that many species are in peril. Um, you know, I wish we didn't have to only have species in captivity, but uh, in certain instances, um, you know, it can be beneficial uh, to learn about the biology of a particular organism to try to... Uh, conduct captive breeding for reintroduction purposes. Uh, sometimes it's it's a last resort. Uh, amphibians, for example, um, mainly frogs in uh, tropical areas. Another area that I've worked in a little bit is um, amphibians because they occupy such a very narrow ecological niche. They sort of, I like to say, live in the Goldilocks zone. It can't be too hot. It can't be too cold. Uh, they need moist, wet environments, but unfortunately that makes them susceptible to fungal diseases. And so many amphibians, frogs in particular, are becoming infected with a a fungus that is in the environment. We're not exactly sure why it has become more prevalent. It's a fairly benign fungus, but when it strikes amphibians, it, it destroys their ability or it impairs their ability to exchange gases. It essentially keratinizes their skin. It makes their skin hard, and amphibians exchange gases across their skin. And so there are species that are going extinct very rapidly, and zoos and botanical gardens. Zoo Atlanta has done an Atlanta Botanical Garden, and uh, a friend of mine at the Amphibian Foundation, which is here in Atlanta, uh, doing amazing work at trying to conserve amphibians. And in some instances, that means bringing, there are no alternatives other than to bring these animals into captivity and try to captively breed them so that we can sustain their populations with the hope that we can someday reintroduce them back into the wild. But these are, in, in some instances, last resort measures. So uh, I'm, I'm happy that uh, zoos and, and, again, these kinds of organizations are 
um, again, very much in the forefront of conservation efforts. It seems to me that there are some uh, uh, botanical gardens which actually have kind of crossed over into uh, the zoology uh, where they're uh, having uh, some small populations of amphibians. Is that correct? That is correct. And, and the Atlanta Botanical Garden, I believe, has had some amphibians. They do. They do. And, and, and that's just an indication of the fact that it's we it's trying to separate the living world into uh, distinct components is is really not the best way to do it. You know, we know we now know more. Um, you know that, and and it gets back to our discussions of ecology. Is that the living world interacts, and so that's why we no longer take animals in zoos and just simply stick them in a cage. But you know, we create exhibits that try to mimic natural conditions uh, that, that these animals would be found in, uh, that they are in coming into contact with other animals, members of their own species, members of other species. They are uh, consuming plants in some instances. They are pollinators in some instances. And so the living world is a magical place that has so many interconnected, uh, so much interconnectedness. And so, again, in captive settings, trying to replicate that is is the is certainly the goal. And the health of the planet is inextricably linked to that those interrelationships. And one way <clears throat> that you've just talked about is um, having certain species uh, in captivity. Uh, but another way is learning to live um, peacefully coexist with a range of, of species, uh, particularly uh, in metropolitan areas. And one area that you've focused on is uh, conservation biology uh, centered around uh, population uh, concentrations. And a few years back, you created uh, the Atlantic Coyote Project. Tell us about that project, and then we'll segue into uh, the value of that coyote um, as a as a keystone species. Uh, but but tell us uh, uh, what. Uh, went into the formation of the Atlanta Coyote Project and what the mission is? Well, I, I should start by giving credit to one of my former students. His name is Justin Edge. He's now in his 30s. He's a guide in Montana, just a great guy. And when he was an undergraduate at Barry, um, he was interested in coyotes. We, we were starting to hear them. This was in the mid nineteen late 1990s, I guess. We were hearing them. Um, and as an animal ecologist, and I think he was in one of my classes, he approached me. He said, hey, what's going on with these coyotes? I said, I don't know. Let's start to find out. So that really launched us um, to just sort of slowly but surely learn more about these animals. Um, as I became more knowledgeable about coyotes, um, I started to give public lectures, and one of the places I gave a public lecture was at the Fernbank Science Center, which is in Atlanta. Uh, the longtime ecologist there was a good friend of mine, Dr. Larry Wilson. We had gone to graduate school together at Emory University. Uh, Larry, a fantastic biologist, said, you know, we really need to look at coyotes in urban populations. There's, there's a great need for information. There's a knowledge gap. People are curious about these animals. In some instances, they're concerned, and they're really not sure where to turn for information. So... Um, so as a result, we launched what we called the Atlanta Coyote Project in 2014. Again, this was after spending at least 10 years studying coyotes, but 
we sort of formally established this uh, Atlanta Coyote Project. We we branded it with the name Atlanta because we wanted it to be known that it was tied to this particular region. Uh, there weren't people studying coyotes in this particular part of, of the United States, so we wanted to, to make sure that people knew that it was about that. And it's a way for us to, to provide public education. It also allows us to collect data, and it just forms the framework for our scientific research because, first and foremost, we're biologists who want to learn more about these animals. Well, we're going to drill down into that topic uh, about coyotes, uh, particularly in urban settings. We're here with Dr. Chris Mallory. We're going to be taking a break, and when we come back, we'll talk more about the Atlanta Coyote Project. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is around town movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not so fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around town movers for that local or cross country move. Timothy, around town movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's around town movers. Call them. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. Please join us at 4 p.m. on Tuesday afternoons. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. Get your pen and paper ready. If there's a move in your near future, I'm here to tell you that the folks I used and now recommend is around town movers. Timothy and the guys recently moved me, and I am and was totally satisfied with a sometimes not so fun experience moving. Call Timothy at 770-378-4708 and make it a good move and a good experience. Around town movers for that local or cross-country move. Timothy, around town movers, in my opinion, are the best. That's around town movers. Call them. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host. And we're here with Dr. Chris Mallory, uh, a Ph.D. associate professor at Berry College who teaches introductory biology, ecology, and focuses a great deal on conservation biology. And in that uh, vein, he created that coyote project and we've been talking about the atlanta coyote project um chris you were talking about how the program affords you uh the study of coyotes tell us more about 
the range of studies. And I know you've been working with, uh, in partnership with uh, various organizations, uh, one of which is the Environment Sandy Springs Organization, which has a wildlife inventory project that you helped structure and are helping in the execution of where cameras are positioned uh, uh, around uh, bodies of water um, where you might have uh, various species congregating. And, in fact, I attended a presentation that you made last night which had these really wonderful um, photographs of blue heron, of uh, coyotes, of deer, of beaver, of otters, of mink, species that a lot of people weren't aware uh, live among us. So tell us more about the inventory that you're conducting. And if I'm not mistaken, it's along a central access in the metro area. So you've kind of confined it. So in essence, you're getting a slice of the uh, the pie, so to speak. We are, uh, you know, and that's just sort of a, a typical method that is used in biological surveying. Again, that's what it is, is it's a survey. I'll, I'll just back up and say that we were approached by uh, the Lincoln Park Zoo, at, which is in Chicago. Uh, there is an Urban Wildlife Institute there. Um, urban wildlife is a, is a field of, of biology that has become more prevalent in the last few years as because many people live in urban environments. And when I say urban environments, you know, that, that means suburban as well. There, you know, it can mean different things to, to different people. But we're talking about areas where humans live. Um, and these areas can be rich in biodiversity, as you suggest, um, you know, much to people's surprise. And what we are interested in as, as biologists, and particularly biologists who are studying coyotes, is the coyote is now what we call the apex predator um, in many places here in the southeast. That's the case. That's because we as humans extirpated. We wiped out the red wolf, which used to be here in the southeast. So when we wiped out the red wolf, it allowed the coyote to move in. Uh, it was a, a natural progression. And so now the coyote serves as the apex predator, and, and um, I think um, – much to many people's surprise is, is that an apex predator actually helps to maintain a healthy ecosystem. Um, it controls other species. Uh, so coyotes, for example, eat lots of small mammals, rodents, for example, rats and mice. And so without an apex predator, you've got a, a large population of rats and mice, rodents, and these animals can carry diseases. And so Apex predators serve a function in a healthy ecosystem. Um, and so our work, we, um, as you mentioned, we, so getting back to our, our uh, the Urban Wildlife Institute at Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago, they asked us to take part in an urban wildlife study. These types of studies are going on in several metropolitan areas now, Chicago, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, Los Angeles, some others are online. Um, in fact, I'm going to a conference about this in Portland, Oregon in, in June. 
But the idea was we established a 50-kilometer transect. Um, it starts in downtown Atlanta, and it goes north for 50 kilometers. It's four kilometers wide. We essentially just mapped this on a, on a map and the, with the goal of establishing 40 remote cameras along this 50-kilometer transect. So every five kilometers, we have four cameras that are interspersed within that segment. Um, these cameras are... They're trail cameras that many people are familiar with. They're activated by either heat or motion sense. Um, we put them usually in areas where we would hope to see wildlife. Um, so we're a little biased in that respect. We're not putting them at the corner of Peachtree Street in downtown Atlanta, but they are very close to places like that. Um, and so with the goal of trying to document all species of biodiversity, um, now we're going to obviously only catch what we say are vertebrate species, so some an, an animal that is large enough to trigger the camera, but we're seeing wonderful amounts of biodiversity, um, and it's part of our scientific studies to see, first of all, what's out there, uh, are there patterns that we see, do we see coyotes, uh, which we do, uh, what other species do we see? Do we see certain species together? Do we see some species that are excluding other species, for example? Um, are we seeing species only at certain times of the year? So there's a lot of information that we hope to gather from this study. It's going to go on for at least a year, um, and it's a, it's a lot of work, and we have lots of great students involved and volunteers, citizen scientists uh, who have been wonderful in helping us to, to gather this data. Yeah, there are so many dimensions to this uh, <clears throat> wildlife inventory, um, which goes well beyond the coyote. Uh, am I mistaken, or does are, are there cameras set up that even go beyond um, your area of uh, focus uh, in the uh, uh, Sandy Springs area? Yeah, so again, they, they it runs for 50 kilometers, which is a little over 30 miles. So it starts in downtown Atlanta and goes all the way to uh, Milton, which is just a, a northern suburb of Atlanta. But in that sliver of uh, Sandy Springs, for example, does it also uh, transgress those uh, boundaries east and west? Um? Uh, no, so it's, it's within, again, we have... You know, we we have to sample. We have to kind of you know do what we can do, and so um, we're within this fifty kilometer by four kilometer wide transect. So again, we're trying to stay within that those parameters. And and, and as you mentioned, uh, it, there's uh, some bias in that uh, you selected areas where you um, think you're going to get uh, some photographs uh, and video of uh, wildlife. But almost all of those uh, cameras are set up within a few hundred yards of major uh, uh, of thoroughfares and, and, in some cases, major thoroughfares. They are. They are. And it really, again, is surprising. And it shows the value of, you know, as you mentioned, we use waterways. Um, living organisms need water. They, they need it to drink. They use them as thoroughfares as well. So, you know, oftentimes we will set cameras near small streams or, or rivers or, or in these, these areas. But, um, yeah, very close to, to very urbanized areas, very close to human populations. Um, and, again, I think very surprising when, when people see these images. Um, so... Now you have a, a, a cost associated with the hardware, and I know you've you've got uh, 
an army of volunteers uh, supporting the effort. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, there's at least one corporate benefactor who has uh, maintained a low profile that helped with the purchase of cameras. Yeah, we've we've pieced together uh, money here and there. Georgia Power, I have a small grant from Georgia Power. The Sandy Springs Environmental Project has also helped us to purchase some cameras. Uh, Barry College has certainly helped out. We uh, were able to run a crowdfunding uh, uh, effort through Barry, which many colleges and universities are, are using nowadays to help raise funds for specific uh, small projects, and so we were able to raise a little bit of money uh, that way. Uh, we have some other uh, local benefactors. A, a company called Atlanta Bourbon Company has given us some funds, and just through private donations. So um, we can certainly always use more money, um, but uh, we're again trying to do this. We're not making money doing this. We're scientists who are simply trying to conduct research and uh, are just trying to cover our costs. Now, um, we w- will get back to the coyote as uh, an indicator of a overall healthy uh, wildlife habitat, but uh, tell us a little more. I mentioned some of the species that uh, were caught on camera, but there are um, species that people just were not aware of uh, uh, peacefully coexisting, uh, you know, Lots of folks um, see uh, the turtles that are out and about, uh, and uh, we might see the occasional duck in a uh, body of water. Um, but tell us about uh, the range of species that you're uh, taking inventory of. Um, and for for people not familiar with the uh, lay of the land, uh, the uh, geography, topography uh, of the southeast and of metro Atlanta, we have an extensive network of creeks and streams. Um, um, there is some relationship to uh, the Chattahoochee River, but throughout the southeast, if you look at uh, most of the major population centers, there are creeks and streams in almost every neighborhood and it's really extensive so does this foster uh, a healthy uh, uh, ecology and, and and habitat it certainly does we you know atlanta is known as the city of trees and so we're you know fortunate to have all of this tree canopy and as you mentioned you know lots of of uh, waterways you know some very small and some larger so uh, you know we have something that is in, of interest to us as biologists is you know we have a, a fairly mild climate obviously we have uh, lush vegetation you know how does this factor into the biodiversity you know how does this affect coyotes for example um, you know does it have any effect people are often surprised for example to, to learn that coyotes much of their diet is vegetation. Uh, I talked last night and uh, about persimmon trees. A persimmon is a tree that we have here in the southeast uh, that produces fruits in the fall that taste wonderful when they're ripe, but when they're unripe, they're extremely astringent. If you've ever tasted a unripe persimmon, it's not something that you'll forget. But coyotes love these fruits, um, and so they gorge themselves on them when they become available in the, in the late fall. So. You know, this is a resource that's somewhat unique to this part of the country. And so 
how does that factor into uh, the the coyote's overall biology? You know, these are the kinds of things that we're interested in learning. And and then again, you know, what effect do coyotes have on other species? Now, we're going to be uh, taking a break here in a bit, but when we come back, um, Dr. Maui, I'm going to have you dispel some of the myths about coyotes and why it is that people do not need to be as fearful of coyotes in urban environments with just a little common sense. Uh, We can peacefully coexist with uh, coyotes um, the same way we do with uh, lots of other species. We're here with Dr. Chris Mowry. We'll be talking about um, conservation ecology, biology, uh, and uh, various aspects of your career um, will save something as a as a, a mystery uh, going into our last segment, and we'll be back right after this break. Quick stakes, that's Q-U-I-K stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. auto love and investment demands the best and for 45 years passport transport has been meeting those demands from manufacturers to the one car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby the first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind passport transport your auto transportation company contact passporttransport.com with your need today passport transport You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Business Hour. We're here with Dr. Chris Mowry, Associate Professor of Biology, Ecology, with a focus on conservation biology at Berry College. And we've been talking about uh, an organization that he helped to found the Atlantic Coyote Project, which, by the way, you can learn more about by going to www.AtlanticCoyoteProject.org. Is that correct? That is correct. And uh, that will lead you to uh, some other connections uh, to tell you more about uh, uh, what Dr. Dr. Mallory is is up to uh, in general. uh, Because, in fact, after your program, there was a larger, uh, more nationally based organization, uh, the uh, Project Coyote. T- tell us about your relationship with that organization because you're a part of a group of science advisors to that group. Right. Project Coyote is a wonderful organization. They are based in Northern California. Um, obviously, as the name suggests, they focus on, on coyotes. They are, they are more uh, focused on public education um, and helping people learn how to coexist with predators, coyotes in particular, but predators in general. 
Camilla Fox is the uh, founder and director of Project Coyote. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be asked to serve on the board of science advisors with Project Coyote, which is a, a group of canid biology researchers really from around the world. And again, I feel very fortunate to be part uh, of a group that, that is made up of some very eminent biologists um, who, who study canids. And when I say canids, I mean dog-like mammals. Uh, and so this organization, it's an advocacy organization. They have recently produced a film, uh, which we have shown twice here in Georgia, uh, called Killing Games, Wildlife in the Crosshairs. And it talks about, the film is a 30-minute is a documentary that deals with um, the misguided attempts at predator control through killing contests, unfortunately. In fact, um, I wanted to ask you about uh, management and and coexistence with with coyotes, and let's go right to the heart of the matter. Why is is killing or trapping, uh, relocating, or killing of coyotes not the answer to peacefully coexisting with coyotes? Well, you have to understand the the canid social structure and, and Coyotes, as, as canids, have, are very social animals, but they form small family groups. There's a male and female. Mom and dad form a, a bond that can last a lifetime, and they will have offspring, small numbers of offspring, pups that can be born every year, um, and then those pups will grow up and, and disperse. Mortality is generally high because coyotes often do exist in, in areas where they're, they're either hit by vehicles or they're persecuted by humans in, in other ways. So mortality is generally high. Uh, but if the family group is stable, numbers will be kept relatively low. Um, the problem comes when, uh, you know, if there's a killing that happens what that does is it disrupts that family group. Now younger animals start reproducing, litter sizes increase, and so what might initially appear as uh, a, an initial uh, diminishment of the population simply rebounds, we call that resurgence, in later years, and we end up with more coyotes than, um, than you started with. Relocation is not an option because, again, these are social animals. Um, you're dropping them off potentially in some other animal's territory. Uh, the, the coyote will likely just simply try to get back to its original territory. And also you have other animals uh, filling that void, literally. Exactly. You've got coyotes. You're never going to control them all. We kill, unfortunately, some estimates, half a million coyotes in this country a year, if not higher. And it hasn't done anything to dent the population. These there, are very resilient animals. There was this other dimension that, that I had completely overlooked, uh, but it was sort of the, the natural equilibrium being maintained by just limited resources. Tell us about that. Well, the coyote at canids, and, and in here in our southeastern ecosystem, is, as I described earlier, we no longer have wolves, and so the coyote has essentially assumed what we call the apex predator role. It's at the top of the food chain. There are other predators we have, but the coyote in, in terrestrial ecosystems in many places is serving that role. And um, they will only produce pups that the environment can produce. Um, so the problem, again, comes when if resources become 
uh, abundant, and and oftentimes that comes through human feeding. Maybe it's purposeful. Maybe it's feeding your dog outside and coyotes are coming by or your dog or your cat. Maybe it's getting into the trash or a compost pile. So access to food that wouldn't normally be there is uh, making life easier for the coyote and allows it to produce larger litters, allows it to, to reproduce. And um, so we, when, when people approach us about peacefully coexisting with coyotes, that's the first thing we talk about is limit access to food. And, and you have a lot of uh, folks who are very uh, concerned that uh, they're small animal. Uh, or large animal, but particularly small animal, will uh, be out in the backyard and that uh, Fifi will be uh, eaten by a coyote. Um, and there are just some common sense things that people can do, just like you keep your eye uh, on your small children, uh, you keep your eye on your small pets. It's right. And, and that's what we always say is that, uh, you know, these are wild animals and they should be treated as such. Uh, you should treat any wild animal with caution and, and as you say, use common sense. Um, Pets and humans are not natural food items for coyotes, but nevertheless, um, if this is a behavior that is learned, and coyotes have personalities just like any other uh, organism that has a large brain, which coyotes do, and so some can learn to prey upon uh, food items like pets, um, and so uh, you know people just need to prevent that from occurring. We call that passive management, trying to avoid problems before they develop. Um, again, I'm going to suggest that uh, to learn more, you can go to www.AtlanticCoyoteProject.org, and uh, you can learn lots about uh, how to peacefully coexist with coyotes and some of the other work um, by Dr. Chris Mallory. But now I want to change to another subject because part of uh, what this program does is as we highlight the careers of professionals, we sort of talk about the multidimensionality, if we can, and if there are interesting other dimensions, you play in a rock band uh, called The Windbreakers. Well, I, that was a band I played in a, a while back. I've, I've, yes, I've pursued music for most of my life, um, and I'm just... You know, I I just I appreciate you asking me about that because I just like to share these stories with my students um, that you can be a multidimensional person and that you don't necessarily need to know exactly the direction of your life at every moment in it. Uh, I see looks of relief on students' faces when they come into my office and they're faced with graduation and they're not sure what they're going to do. Uh, and I tell them. Don't worry about it. You'll find your way. Uh, life is a journey. Um, follow your passion, but understand that life is a lot easier when you have money, when you are able to feed yourself. So, um, you know, try to seek that balance. But I think just sort of giving them validation that um, it's okay that you don't necessarily know this prescribed path from day one. So is there a name for this group? Are you Chris Mallory and the Howling Wolves? (laughs) (laughs) So I've played in a band called the Cosmic Americans for the last 10 or 15 years. Oh, I like the sound of that. Um, That's a reference to Graham Parsons, um, for any of you Graham Parsons lovers out there, who was sort of the founder of what we call country rock or Americana rock. That's a different story. But now I'm actually pursuing music with my son Alex Mowry um, and that's just a real joy Alex is about to graduate from the University of Georgia next week Uh, he's a fine musician in his own right and so he and I are writing and 
performing songs together were sort of in the infancy of forming this band, which is as of yet unnamed. But there's there's no greater joy than pursuing something you love with your own child. So I'm very is he a music major? He's not a music major, um, but like me, he. is just finding his passion. He was actually a business major um, in college, but also with a, a degree in sustainability. So he he followed some of his uh, some of what I taught him has rubbed off evidently in his life. But uh, so he's about to make his own way in the world. Well, a shout out to Alex uh, for uh, maintaining his uh, academic interests uh, that will lead hopefully to a career but also his passion for music as you have done because again a lot of professionals are more multi-dimensional than most people might realize and have more than one passion and i personally believe that when you can follow your passions it it helps generate a sense of equilibrium with you within your own life so i think that you're very lucky and you're right being able to perform uh, with your son has got to be a great joy. Indeed. Well, we're uh, winding down the business hour. Um, I appreciate you for the work that you do on behalf of conservation biology and uh, in your teaching capacity, in your uh, Atlanta Coyote project, and I appreciate that you've taken the time to come on to the business hour. Thank you so much for inviting me, and I I just feel like I'm paying it forward, as they say. So many people have helped me in my life, and I'm very fortunate to be able to do what I do. And so if I can help others do that, I'm I'm happy to be able to do that. But thank you for having me. You've been listening to Dr. Chris Mallory here on the Business Hour. I'm Ron Camacho, your host here at America's Web Radio. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you on the radio and the Internet next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.